Everybody will come to the point where they fail at something, and the question is, especially with God, how far can I go? And I remember when I was growing up, I would always ask myself the question, have I now sinned too much? Well, what about now? Have I sinned too much then? And what, what would happen is, while in my mind I would think back to all of the times that I fail in a secular pursuit, whether it was playing a sport game, and if I make a big mistake, then I feel like the world is on my shoulders, and then I don't get picked to be on the, the uh, wall ball team again, and I would always associate that with my spiritual life. And so this afternoon, as we uh, think about God's Word, as we share God's Word, and as we study God's Word, we'll be covering the topic, How Much is Too Much? Now, I have a question. How many of you guys have ever heard of a lady named Angela Duckworth? Anybody? Alright, she did her doctorate at Penn State University, and she specialized in education, and what she wanted to ask, or the question that she asked was, in the pursuit of academic excellence, can we ingrain a specific character trait that will cause students to succeed in life? Can we actually teach that, or is that something that we're naturally born with? And so, I don't know if you ever went to school with a kid that always excelled in class, and that person just seemed like no matter what, they would get a high distinction in every single one of their classes, and you just thought, man, that person like was just born with a gift from like a gift from above. And I remember thinking that myself. And uh, basically, Angela Duckworth did uh, years of research, and um, she produced a series of studies called Grit Studies. And so, if you go on Google and you type up the name Angela Duckworth. Or if you type up grit studies, um, you'll find uh, you'll come across the findings of her research. And this is basically what she did. She went to the West Point Military Training Academy in the U.S. And basically, this school is uh, very difficult to get into. It's uh, the military school that the United States military handpicks students from to be officers in their uh, in their uh, I guess in their in the military. And what happens is, in order to get into the student uh, into the school, you have to be a very high-achieving student. In other words, you have to excel physically. Now, I don't know if any of you had to pass a physical examination to get into your uni, but to get into West Point Military Training Academy, you have to pass a physical examination. Uh, just to give you an example, if you want to get in, you have to be able to kneel down on one side of a basketball court, take a basketball between both of your hands, and chuck it one length of a basketball court. And if you cannot hurl this basketball across the full length of a court with two hands on your knees, you can't get it. And so that's just one element of the physical exam. Not only that, you have to do really well on your college entrance exams. These are called the SATs. And you have to get a letter of recommendation from the governor of your state. And so if you don't know the governor of your state, tough luck, you can't get in. And so, I actually have a friend who made it in, and, and that's why I know this information. And he was just saying, it is crazy getting in there. And once you get into West Point, that's not where the pain stops. <laughs> that's where it begins. <laughs> and so, Angela Duckworth did this series of studies. She went to West Point, and she um, processed a select group of students through a series of uh, tests. So, the first test was an IQ test. And this would basically determine whether or not these students were gifted, they were born from a good gene pool, and they were just naturally smart. She also gave them a character assessment test just to see what kind of individuals they were, whether they were highly disciplined, not disciplined, or it just gave her an idea of what these students were like. So after the character assessment, after the IQ test, she categorized students into three different categories. The first category were the students that scored exceptionally high on their IQ examinations. They were not disciplined. They were just smart. And so these students 
exam very well, but these are the these are the um, last the, the procrastinators, the last minute study students that could study in five minutes and ace the test. So that's category number one. Category number two are the disciplined students. These students did not score as high on the IQ test, but they, they showed very regular routine throughout their day. Uh, they scheduled out all their study periods, and uh, these were the students that were just like, no, I can't go out and watch the movie tonight. I've got to study. Or, no, it's 9 o'clock, I'm going to bed, and uh, I need to wake up tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the morning. So these are the d disciplined students. And then there was a third category, and she categorized this third group of people with uh, the category called grit. And these are a group of students that had a specific character trait. Now, these students weren't necessarily disciplined. In other words, uh, their study habits were very sporadic. Um, these students didn't necessarily score high on their IQ exams, so they weren't necessarily smart. But they had a character trait called grit. And basically, the way that Angela Duckworth defines grit is by this. She says, people who have a passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Passion and perseverance for long-term goals. In other words, no matter how hard it got, they would just keep pushing on, keep pushing on. Like, you know what? I went to bed late. I messed up that exam. Next day, I'm going to hit the books again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better and finish out the exam or finish out the semester strong. And so these students were called the gritty students. And so she basically monitored these students through a, a series of basically boot camp. It's like uh, the, the new students come into West Point, they go through boot camp, uh, and they basically weed out all the weak ones, basically. That's the purpose of, I think they call it Hell Week. And so she um, assessed these students through Hell Week, and I think it was one semester, if I'm not mistaken. And at the end of the semester, she assessed how these students did. Now, at West Point, they don't just give you uh, points or scores for academia. They give you points and scores for how well you behave. So it's kind of like a social grade. Like, are you well-behaved? You get a smiley face. If you're, like, really naughty, you get, I don't know. But anyway, they get graded. And so what she would do is it's a very holistic way of uh, examining or assessing these students. And this is what she found. Those that had exceptionally high IQ scored the lowest. Those that were disciplined scored next highest, and then those that had grit scored the best. And so what happened is, after she published these re uh, this research, companies from all over the world, the military itself contacted Angela, uh, Angela Duckworth and said, how do we instill grit in our military personnel or in our, um, in our corporate staff? And so basically she's become quite well known because of these studies. Now, if... Uh, if I can distill her studies into one uh, neat little package, I would say the core of how to produce grit in an individual is learning how to get over your failure. And a lot of times people lose their passion, they lose their long-term goals because of roadblocks that they come up to. Or they tend to perform less because you keep messing up and you don't know how to get over that, get over that hump. And I don't know if you guys watch sports, but every now and then you'll see uh, a cricketing bowler who doesn't bowl as good for like a three-month span. They're just in a slump, right? And so the question is, to produce excellence in an athlete, how do you get over your slump? And so today, uh, the message is, how much is too much failure? Now, this isn't really from Angela Duckworth. I just looked up a couple Bible texts, and I thought, I think this is pretty applicable. So this isn't like particularly academic, but I'll share some biblical principles that I think are helpful in thinking about failure, and I think there's a bridge between the Bible 
and the way we live our lives today. And so there are three basic principles that I want to share with you this morning um, regarding failure. So here's the very first principle, um, and that is this. Expect failure. Everybody fails. The first step to getting over failure is to expect it. And a lot of times we expect more of ourselves, so when it happens it becomes very disappointing and we end up failing even more and you almost get into this black hole. So the first step into overcoming failure is to expect failure. So this first Bible text here is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says that sin entered into the world through one man, and through that one man, everybody has sinned. In other words, we all have to wrestle and grapple with this idea that we have sin inside of us, and we are bound and doomed to failure. We are going to fail. Uh, there's another text in Psalms chapter 51, verse 4, and it just basically says we are born into sin. And in the Bible, it kind of parallels this concept of sin and messing up, if you will, or failure. And so, here's another text. If we go to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, here's what it says. Although a righteous person may fall seven times, he gets up again, but the wicked will be brought down by calamity. Now, I have a question for you. As you look at this verse, or a piece of this verse on the screen, there's a common denominator between the righteous person and the wicked person, all right? There's a difference between the righteous and the wicked and the wicked, and there's also a common denominator between the righteous and the wicked. Now, when you look at this verse, what is the common denominator? Sorry. Yeah, they all fall. It's failure. So, usually when you think of the good versus the bad, the good are doing something that the bad is not doing. But when you look at this verse, it's saying both good and bad fail. Now, for me, that's interesting because... In my mind, I always used to think, well, God doesn't want me to fail. And so, how do, I, how do I reconcile? What does it even mean to be good? When I think about this verse, I come to this conclusion. God is not so concerned as to whether or not you and I will fail. So, God is more concerned with what we do after we fail. Does that make sense? I'm used to thinking God is more concerned if I fail. And what this text is saying is that God is more concerned with what you and I do after we have failed. Now with that in mind, let's go to the second verse. Uh, or the second point. So the first point is this. Everybody fails. Now I heard this one-liner one time and I thought, man, this is a keeper. It goes like this. The important thing to consider when thinking about failure is to not let it defeat you. The important thing to consider when you about failure is to not let it defeat you. And so it's okay to fail, it's not okay to give up. That's the sermon in a sentence for today. It's okay to fail, it's not okay to give up. So point number one, everybody fails. Here's, a, here's point number two. Point number two is this, take responsibility for your failure. Take responsibility for your failure. Now. As a Christian, I've almost become professional at not taking responsibility for my failure. And let me, let me explain it this way. Sometimes we can take these concepts and these principles and we can take our mess-ups and we can almost baptize them and make them good. And let me, let me give you an example. One is just, uh, not well, one is avoidance, right? One is denial. Um, I remember when I was in sixth grade, my teacher used to send home these report cards 
um, in the middle of the semester. And from that point, like every single week, he would send these report cards. And usually what happens is your parents get your report card at the end of the year, and uh, if you did well, then all is good. If you did poorly, it's not so great. And uh, for them, it's like, surprise! Oh, yeah, I failed last year. And so what this teacher would do is to preemptively get students to pay attention to uh, what would happen at the end of the semester, he would send the grades, grades home early. And we would have to take it to our parents, and we'd have to get those grades signed. And so what would happen is we would get our weekly report card, and we would kind of compare one with another. Like, hey, what did you get in spelling? Or what did you get in reading or writing or whatever? And uh, I had an F in one of my, in one of my assignments. And, uh, do you guys use the ABC system in, in Australia? All right, well, F... It's not a good grade. And so uh, my friend looked over my shoulder, and she was like, you got an F. And I looked at her, and I was like, that stands for fantastic, all right? And it's complete denial, like avoidance of reality. And, and what happens is, like, as humans, we're so prone to passing the buck off. And what ends up happening is that though we might not get in trouble for that immediate moment, the problem continues to persist and it becomes a part of who we are. And that problem never leaves us and it just follows us wherever we go. And so, yeah, one way of handling failure is um, avoidance or denial. Here's the second uh, Christianized version of avoidance and that's basically uh, this concept of um, it's okay, God will take care of everything. And I'll give you an example. Um, I am habitually late to things. And <laughs> what, what happened is, when I first came to Australia, I was very dependent upon the public transportation system. And I didn't have a car of my own, and so I was always running to the bus stop or the tram stop or the train stop to get there on time, because they run off of that silly timetable, right? And I was kind of hoping the bus will just be like 30 seconds late or one minute late, and just hopefully there's traffic. And what happened is, one time I had my backpack, I forgot to zip it closed, and I left it open, and I had my favorite Bible in there. I mean, it was like this Cambridge leather Bible, and it's made out of calf skin, and you smell it, and it just smells like a cow. And it was like it was like <laughs> the best Bible ever. And I had it in my backpack, and I ran to the bus stop because I was late, and the Bible fell out of my bag. I didn't know it. So I get to where I need to go, and I actually had to give a Bible study. And so I'm like, well, let me grab my Bible, and it's not there. So I was like, ah, oh, yeah. We'll just have a nice conversation then, because <laughs> I don't have my Bible. And I thought, where did I put it? And I realized, oh, it must have dropped off after I uh, ran to the bus stop. So I get home at night, and I backtrack the whole trail back to the house, and I cannot find that Bible anywhere. And I'm like, oh, like that was my favorite, favorite Bible. And at, <laughs> later on that evening, I thought, well, perhaps somebody benefited from my loss. After all, it is a Bible, so maybe somebody who really needed it came across the Bible and thought, oh, what's this? And I think I'll take this home with me. And I thought, God bless that person. I, I hope the Bible is a blessing to that individual. And what happens is, I made a mistake. I'm late to the bus. And rather than just acknowledging, you know what, just take responsibility for it and get there earlier next time, I'm like, God will take care of it. Which, God does take care of our mistakes. I mean, we make so many mistakes, I, I don't know exactly how the world functions without the mercy of God. But having said that, if I never take responsibility for my own actions, I'll never change. I'll never take responsibility for it and say, you know what? If I just take care of my, my own personal timetable better, I don't have to worry about stuff like this. And so the second principle to overcoming failure is take responsibility for your failures. 
There is a text here in Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. He who confesses his sins will have mercy. In other words, with God, there's this element where God wants us to know, hey, look, you made a mistake, but as soon as you tell me I made a mistake, there's mercy for you. And if we never come to the point of taking responsibility for our actions, we'll never actually find mercy. We'll never never find release from that thing which is causing us to fail. So, in review, the two principles that, uh, that I've shared so far is, one, expect failure. Two, take responsibility for your failure. And here's the third and final uh, principle. Have a safe environment where you can fail. Have a safe environment where you can fail. There's a lady named Twyla Tharp, and she has been nominated, and she's also won several Grammy Awards for choreography. And this is like interpretive dance. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever watched interpretive dance. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make a blanket statement. I'm like, no, that's why someone here loves interpretive dance. I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. I don't understand interpretive dance. Let's put it that way, right? And this woman specializes in interpretive dance. And when somebody interviewed her and asked her, hey, so what's the secret to your success? How do you, how do you gain all these nominations? This is what she says. Every morning from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., I lock myself in a room with a video camera. And in front of that camera, I think of any movement that would be, that would be useful to a specific type of choreography. And for three hours, I practice dance moves in front of my video camera. Uh, this is, that part is like, okay, yeah, you practice. But this is what she says. If in a three-hour session, if I can get 30 seconds of good material, that's a successful day. 30 seconds of good movement, that's a successful day. Now, I thought to myself, you're telling me not only do you dance in front of a camera for three hours, you watch painfully at this screen of yourself moving in different weird ways for two hours, 59 minutes, and 30 seconds before you find 30 seconds of, oh, that's gold right there. I, I would never do that. <laughs> like, I would never, like, I'm trying to picture it, I'm trying to picture in my mind, what does she do? And I was like, ah, never mind, I, I can't, I can't even think of what, what would happen. But can you imagine? 30 seconds out of three hours. It's gold. She's got this safe environment where you can actually, where she can fail without worrying about what anybody says, without worrying about what anybody thinks, and she's to herself. She edits that which is good, she practices that which is good, and there you go. She's nominated for these high, uh, high awards, and she's seen as someone who's like very good at what she does. Now, the challenge with life is that in the world, we have this contradiction between our learning culture and our performance culture. And this world will reward you for good performance. Like, let me give you an example. If you study really hard in uni, and you take your exams, and I know here in Australia, you guys study for specific... Uh, I guess you go into your program or your degree immediately, right? So it's not so much, can I get into Harvard or Stanford? It's more like, can I get into medicine or can I get into IT or whatever it may be? So what I'm saying is, let's say you study in school and you get into your program. The system will reward you for high academic achievement, performance, correct? And then you get into your job and you perform, you perform, you perform, and that's when you get your promotions, right? If you're really lazy, will your Manager come to you and say, good job, here's a raise. Probably not, right? And so it's ingrained in us to do good. 
And that is at odds with this culture that everybody knows you actually have to learn. And there has to be a learning curve and you have to be able to fail in order to actually succeed. And so for those of you who have ever done any kind of research or any kind of lab work, like if you make a hypothesis, you try an experiment and it fails, nobody says, shame on you. Like, how could you fail that experiment? Like, nobody says that. They're just like, oh, good. Move on to the next one. Or when you're writing, um, I've heard a statement, there's no such thing as good writing, only good rewriting. There's no such thing as good writing, only good rewriting. And so every writing teacher knows if you get a first draft and you turn it in, and that teacher looks at it, they're going to say, give me another draft. Because they know in the process of refinement and in the process of fixing your mistakes, you get better and better and better at it. And that's it's a learning culture. Everybody knows it. But when it comes to our lives, it's so hard to apply practically because where's the, where's, the, where's the environment of safety where we can fail? So what about your Christian experience? Does that environment actually exist? Are you allowed to fail over and over and over and over and over again until you finally get it? Or is God kind of waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can slap you on the hand and say, ah, I've got to judge you now. Like, ah, you made a mistake? Punishment for today. Oh, you forgot to spend time with me this morning? Well, your car's going to get into an accident. Like, is that, is that how it works? Or does God actually give us an environment to fail? You know, I used to think in my mind, there are certain sins that you cannot do, absolutely not. Right? Some things like immorality, it's just a no-no. Oh, as soon as I touch a cigarette, game over. Done. God doesn't love you anymore. What if... What if I lie? What, is, what about the sin of presumption where I'm like, you know what? It's okay if I fail. Is that what I'm saying? It's okay if I fail. So I just keep failing. No, no, no. Don't do that. Otherwise, Jesus is not going to be happy with you. I want to share a text from the Bible that explains this environment of safety. And what I'm going to do is, if you have your Bibles, it's Romans chapter 5. And we're going to read through Romans chapter 5, verses uh, 1 to 8, backwards. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 8, backwards. And what I want to do is kind of look into the Word of God to see what that environment of safety looks like. So Romans chapter 5, I'll start by reading verses 6 to 8. And it reads, For while we are still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's my question. The Bible talks about this concept where God, or excuse me, yeah, God through Jesus dies for us. In other words, he's trying to reconcile this broken relationship. Our failures have separated us from God, and God wants to take away that separation. And so God sends Jesus to die for us. Now when you read that text... I want to ask the question, when does God send Jesus? Does he send Jesus when we're, we've got everything right and we're living the perfect life, or does he send Jesus when we're failures? Option one or option two? All right. So usually when I ask really blatantly, obviously, but obvious <laughs> questions in the room is silent, I'll just assume you already know. So option two, right? God sent Jesus while we were still sinners. Think about this for a second. God wants to reconcile, has made the provision for that reconciled relationship before we have fixed anything, anything. 
And the challenge is sometimes we grow as Christians and we even come to church and we, uh, we enter into spiritual communities and we think we've got to get life right. And we always think at some point in time, I've got to get it right in order for God to have that relationship with me or for God to want to have that relationship with me. But my question is this. If God started this relationship with you when you didn't have it right, why would he ever change his mind? Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that there is this environment where you can actually grow, where you can mess up and learn from your mistakes. And so here it says, God sent Jesus while we were still sinners. In other words, my point is this. The environment of safety exists. It exists. Regardless of where you're at in your walk with God, regardless of where you're at, God, that environment exists. So let's go back a little bit more, and this will explain what's supposed to happen in that environment. I'll start in verse 3. It says, Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, there's kind of like this, if you look at the wording, there's almost this ladder of growth, if you will. Um, initially, it says we start out with suffering. Everybody suffers. You go about your day, you're driving in the car, somebody cuts you off. You know, the, the natural response probably isn't, God bless you, brother, or have a great day, or, you know, peace, love, and joy. You know, like, we don't think, goodness, we usually think, hey, man, like, what are you doing? Or like, honk the horn, like, you know. Anyway, and so everybody deals with suffering, right? And at that point, you have the choice whether or not you're going to respond in a positive way or in a negative way, regardless of what it may be. You can call it temptation for the Christian. You can call it a day of difficulty or a bad day for the non-Christian. It's just every day you are faced with scenarios and situations where you get to respond positively or respond negatively. And so uh, the author of Romans says, this is suffering. Now, if you're able to endure enough suffering, that suffering produces endurance, right? Patience, character. That, that uh, produces this ability to consistently make the right decision in those difficult circumstances. You continue on, it builds character and character hope. And so there's kind of like this ladder that, that's, uh, that, that's going upward, if you will. Um, and basically, Paul is just saying, listen, in this environment of safety, it allows you to grow and to develop. And that's what it's supposed to do. When you have security, you can develop. And so a lot of times what happens is we come into these situations of suffering, and instead of responding the positive way, we respond. I, I respond the negative way. And it's like, oh, man, I messed up again today. And when I, when I think through the scenario, it's just saying, you know what? There's room for me to mess up. But pretty soon, I keep messing up, messing up, messing up, messing up. I'm going to learn from my mistakes, and I'll know, hey, you know what? Um, I... I used to drive a Golf, and it was really fast, and I realized, this is making me really aggressive. If I sell this car and drive a slow car, well, I can't be aggressive anyway. And so you start learning from these decisions that you make. It, pretty soon, well, now nobody makes me upset because I can't pass them anyway. <laughs> and so I'm just saying, in this environment, you, you learn from your mistakes. And so here's my next question. We know the environment exists. We know what's supposed to happen inside of the environment. The question is, how do I enter in? Do you personally feel like it's okay for you to feel, uh, fail? In your own walk with God, God, do you feel like, God, if I fail right now, you're going to love me? Like, I know you're going to love me. Does that environment exist for you? So my question is, how do you enter in? 
Look at the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, or right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of, glory, of God's glory. Now, there's a lot of Bible language in there, but let me just paraphrase a little bit. It says, there is this environment where you can be at peace with God, and you can be at peace with God. And in verse number two, it tells us how we enter into that environment. And so as you read verse two, I want to ask you, how do you enter in? So it's a little bit of textual analysis. I want to get you used to reading the text, and I'll just ask you a question, and whoever knows it, just shout out the answer. How do you enter into that atmosphere of safety? Is this one of those situations where the answer is blatantly obvious, and so <laughs> if you want to answer anybody? By what? Faith, right? So you enter into that atmosphere by faith. And what he says is, we enter, excuse me, uh, we have obtained access by faith into this grace. And so if you, if you look at that word grace and think of a picture, I think of like this bubble of grace. And you can enter into that bubble of grace. Now the reason why I call it a bubble is, is this. If you look at the actual grammar, it's the, the Greek that's used is it's saying now and forever. Now and forever. In other words, by faith you enter into that atmosphere of safety and you are there forever. Does that make sense? Now that almost sounds like once saved, always saved. And some, some of you are going to think, you're in there forever. What if you make a mistake? And what we usually think is when we enter in, we go, Jesus, I love you. Or, God, I want to give my life to you, and you enter into that atmosphere of safety. And when you mess up, the natural, the feeling at least that I have felt is, now I'm outside of that atmosphere of grace. Does that make sense? Now, when you read the text, Paul is saying, that's not how it works. When you enter in, you are in. Now, there is one condition whereby which you enter in. What is that condition? And I'm just repeating myself, but just so I know, you know. What's the one condition? How do you enter in? Faith. That's right. In other words, you are saved or you have peace with God based off of what you believe of Him. Does that make sense? When you believe Jesus, you have forgiven me, you're in there. So my question is this. If that is a condition to enter in, what is a condition to exit out? Anybody? Adultery, right? No. What about stealing? What about killing somebody? Are you, are you out of that grace then? What about presumption? What if you keep messing up over and over and over again? Does that kick you out of the atmosphere of grace? What kicks you out of that atmosphere? Unbelief. Does that make sense? You enter in by acknowledging what Jesus has done for you. And the moment that you don't believe that Jesus has done what he's done for you, that's the moment where that atmosphere doesn't exist. And what usually happens is our disobedience, our failures, our mistakes make us think that God doesn't love us, and that's why the atmosphere no longer exists for that individual. But for the individual that acknowledges, you know what? 
that atmosphere, it's there. It exists. So I have failed, but Jesus loves me. Because he loves me when I made a mistake anyway. And so, by acknowledging that he still loves me, that atmosphere of safety is still there. It exists. Does that make sense? Logically, it makes sense. Now, the challenge is turning that head knowledge into a heart experience. And I suppose if somebody knew how to do that in a very practical way, they'd be a millionaire. And I think that's a challenge of Christianity. Is it's so difficult to explain faith and how to experience it. But I'm going to make an attempt, all right? If you go to the book of Hebrews, and I'll end here. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, I think this slide is here, yeah? Verses 17 and 18. Or, yep, 17 and 18. The Bible says this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things related to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. So this is in regards to Jesus. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. And the question is this. Why is he allowed? How can he be a merciful and faithful high priest? And in verse 18 it says, For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. In other words, Jesus went through what you and I went through. And he understands us. And that's why he's able to be a faithful and merciful high priest. Because he gets you and I. When, uh, when I first found out that I had to come back to Australia, what happened is I went to uni in the U.S. and uh, had an agreement um, that after I finished uni, I'd come back here to Melbourne and I would help pastor a church. And so I knew I'm here in this Adventist environment. I'm, in, I'm here at this uni. I need to find a wife. And that was like the number, uh, I shouldn't say number one. No, it was the number one goal. <laughs> I won't lie to you guys. <laughs> and so one was, you know, make sure that the studies are taken care of. And two, find a good wife. And so the challenge was this. How am I going to convince this person to come to Australia with me? <laughs> One challenge is finding the person. The second challenge is making sure that person comes back with me. And uh, I remember I met Jinha. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were working together. We got to know each other. And um, I was like, so I'm actually going to go to Australia uh, for work. Um, would you like to come with me? <laughs> like, I can try and find a job for you, and Melbourne is the most livable city in the world. Yeah! <laughs> and uh, anyway, I was just pulling stuff out of nowhere, and I was like, please come. And we, we weren't even dating at that time, and so we were, <laughs> I, I had to convince this woman, because for me, it's like, I don't want to be like, hey, let's be in a relationship, and then like, you know, oh, by the way, <laughs> like, surprise, we're going to Australia. Like, I just wanted to tell her, look, I'm going to be here in like two years, um, we kind of have to make this decision. And so, anyway, obviously she was like, you want me to leave my job, because she was working at that time. You want me to leave my friends. You want me to leave my family. And you want me to come to a strange country where I don't know anybody. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and that sounds about right. And she was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I kept repeating, no, but it's the most livable city in the world. <laughs> and that was like, the number one argument starter in our relationship for about nine months. And each time she would say, 
know, I don't want to go on. And I would say, come on, come with me. And well, we decided to get together anyway, and then we were hashing out the details. And she would repeatedly say this one line to me. She would say, you don't understand me. And in my mind, I was thinking, I understand that you should come to Melbourne. <laughs> and I didn't know what she was talking about. Like, I grew up with my brother and my dad, and there was no real female influence. So whenever she used the line, you don't understand me, it was like she was speaking a different language. Like, no, I actually do get what you're saying. Like, I do also get, like, come on, just come with me. And one time, I was at home, and I'm sitting on my bed. I thought to myself, you know, maybe it would be difficult for her to leave her job. Maybe it would be difficult for her to leave her family. And maybe, maybe it is difficult for her to come. So I went, I gave her a call, and I was like, look, I get this is a very difficult decision for you, so... Let's just do long distance. And in my mind, I was like, forever. Like, when is this ever going to take place? And, and I was just like, let's just do long distance. And uh, we'll, we'll work it out as we go. And, and I was like, you don't have to come to Australia. Like, let's, let's, make this, let's make this thing work out. Like, no matter what happens, let's stick this through. And, um, yeah, like, I get that. Thank you very much. And, and so, yeah. And there's this pause on the phone, and Jin Ha goes, I'll come with you to Australia. And now, I mean, now instead of being, like, happy, I was, like, mad. I was, like, what? <laughs> like, what happened? And she was, like, you finally understand me. Like, you get me. And because you actually know what I'm going through, I know you appreciate, you're going to appreciate this. And I appreciate that. And what she's saying is, Roy, if you just understood me, I'd go with you to the moon. Like, I'll go with you anywhere. Just, I need you to understand. And there's this element of getting why people struggle with specific decisions. When that person feels like, yeah, I'm struggling, but the other person gets me, there, there, there's this environment where you don't feel condemned for what you do. Yeah, it's a difficult decision, but the person gets you. And for some reason, having that environment causes you to actually be willing to go through with it. And so here, Jesus said, God sends Jesus to die for us. And what he's trying to communicate to us is, I understand you. I know that it's difficult to obey. I know that it's difficult to do the right thing. So if you don't do the right thing, I've sent Jesus to die for your sin. I get you. So even if you don't do the right thing, there's forgiveness for you. And at some point in time, hopefully, we'll get to understand God. And in understanding God, we'll see Jesus on the cross saying, He has died for me you know what, maybe this, this sin, this, this issue in my life, maybe this struggle, maybe it's not the right thing. So you know what, I don't want to do it anymore. Because I know that God understands me. And you know what, I get him too. I know this isn't good for me, so I'm going to let it go. And I think that's, I think the, the sense of being understood and having this atmosphere of safety is the birthplace of Christian growth. And sometimes we focus on the, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. And we think that's what Christianity is all about. And for me, it's before that comes this relationship with God, where he's communicating to you, I understand you, I love you, I accept you. Even if you do the wrong thing, I'm still here. As long as you don't push me away, I'm here. That's a birthplace of growth. And so I hope, as you think about your, your own Christian journey, your spiritual journey, or whether it's a secular endeavor, maybe you've hit a roadblock. What I have found is, even outside of my own spiritual life, 
God is powerful and big enough to take care of our secular endeavors. And even if you have a goal or you hit a roadblock, you know, what I find is there's room to grow there and there is that atmosphere of safety if you ask God to take care of you. And so, as you think about this question, how much is too much? And as we discuss it, um, I hope there's something new and something, uh, something that gives you strength and encouragement to continue on, to become gritty, to have a passion and perseverance for a long-term goal. And I hope in overcoming that failure, you can find a loving Savior and even success. So with that, uh, I'll close with prayer, and uh, we'll, we'll break up into discussion. Father God, as we think through uh, failure and how to overcome failure, whatever it may be in our lives, I pray that you would, your presence would be felt, that you would be experienced in a very profound, real way, and even through our mess-ups, as we experience your great love for us, may it inspire us to keep pressing on. And uh, Father, as we think about our goals, whether they be uh, spiritual, whether they be professional, I pray that um, as we discuss these principles and concepts, um, that you would really deepen uh, the ideas that have been shared. And as we challenge one another, as we uh, as we explore with one another, um, may we be able to encourage one another as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.